Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast, and I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And uh, this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps today for a better life by visiting FHEHealth.com, FHEHealth.com. And so today, what I want to do, I want to bring on a guest, uh, and this is someone that I met when I was down in Florida. The last episode, I talked about how I went down and met with the great people at FHE Health. And if you don't know anything about them, if you haven't checked them out, please do check out their website because it's a really good program. And in fact, prior to coming on to the podcast here, I was talking to our guest about how impressed I was with the facilities, with the work that they're doing. And frankly, this is the first treatment center I've ever visited. And I visit many treatment centers that puts the emphasis on the mental health aspect. And in fact, there were many clients that were there for mental health only, not just substance abuse, but mental health only. And it was fantastic. And they have uh, programs for the community, but also Shatterproof, which we talk about. And Shatterproof is for first responders. And so that's a, a separate program that serves those unique needs. So while we were there... We had meetings with uh, the other trainers because I do training for FHE and uh, they brought in all of the community folks that are involved in the program and then the other trainers and we got to meet everybody and we had some fantastic discussions. And so one of the people that I met is Captain Renee Peterson with the uh, Broward County Sheriff's Office. She's a captain there and she's part of the community services unit there and she's going to talk about that a little bit more. And I want you to just hear about the work that she does because she's a fantastic advocate for the work that we do in recovery and also in the mental health realm of what we do. And she's just really motivated, just a great person, a great advocate, a great representative down there at Broward County Sheriff's Office. And I want you guys to meet her and hear about some of the great work that she's doing. So with that, Captain Peterson, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, that was a very nice intro. (laughs) Well, thank you for a very nice person. I was very impressed when I met you and just your motivate, I mean, just really motivated to, to do work in the community. And one of the questions I had when I first met you was because, you know, everybody that was in the room that was talking, you know, trains on addiction and, uh, uh, many, not all, but many of the, the people are, in recovery themselves, and that's sort of what motivated them to come into the work. That's what motivated me to come into this type of work. But you came through sort of a different door, and um, if you would just kind of talk to us about, you know, how how are you and how are what's your relationship with FHE, and how did you get involved in this sort of work? Well, I have to give credit uh, as far as FHE goes. They have an amazing individual that's out there connecting with the community and promoting their mission at FHE, uh, Miss Kathy Hurt, who you you and I both know. Mm-hmm. And um, I met Kathy. It's a funny story. I had no intention on doing any type of work related to substance abuse. So in uh, from some of my relationships in the community, Kathy, and you know FHE has a heart for first responders and Kathy's husband's retired from the Broward County Sheriff's Office. So she was looking for ways that FHE could connect with and support more people with uh, in law enforcement and first responders in general, because I know she deals with firefighters, 
and um, some girls that work in corrections. So where she and I met was basically she's looking for feedback to connect with some of these groups. And because I'm in the community, I know a lot of women that work with the police municipalities as well as the sheriff's office. So through our conversation at our meeting, I told her about some work that I'm recently going through certification for with the Center for Mind, Body and Medicine. And she was a little shocked because she's like, how does that tie into community policing? And I said, you know, I spoke to some community organizers and they were talking about the pandemic, the toll it was taking on the youth in the community. We already know during the summer months, kids don't have a lot to do and that's when crime goes up. And a lot of shootings that were taking place or uh, people dying through the pandemic and these kids were acting out on this and it had everything to do with their mental health and no one dealing with it. So one of the um, YMCA's in greater Fort Lauderdale, they wanted to bring in someone to do meditation and breath work with some of the kids. And they noticed that on the uh, west side of Broward County, cities like Weston, they had this work being done with the children, but the kids on the east side of town could not afford it. I mean, the, the lowest rate that they found was $15 per child. And where that doesn't seem like a lot in some other neighborhoods where parents are already struggling and losing their jobs due to the pandemic, that was a big ask when you're barely mm. able to afford groceries and buy gas. So I had an idea. I, I've always, since I've taken this position as a captain over NST, which is our neighborhood support team, this is a new initiative by Sheriff Gregory Tony. And I wanted to come into this role very intentional about being progressive and thinking outside of the box and being innovative. Because, you know, when I worked as a detective, you would hear about coffee with a cop. I was like, yeah, yeah. You see the police chief posing with people in the community. But when they leave, it was like more of a photo op because nothing was changing in the community. So I tried to think, you know, what if my team and I could become certified and the breath work and meditation and mindfulness. And what I learned through going through the Center for Mind, Body and Medicine, they, it was more than just that. They dug deep and went into trauma therapy. And some of these sessions are so revealing to a lot of things that we have going on within us. So as I stepped into this arena to help the community and, and, and find a new way to kind of push out community policing initiatives, I started doing the work on myself and that was a part, the unique part of the certification process is you got to get good with you and get right with yourself before you help anyone else. So oh, yeah. the center, yeah, if you, I I don't know if you heard of them, they did, they've done work on the Gaza Strip, Sandy Hook, 9-11, and they were here after MSD, which is why I had this opportunity here in Broward County to be one of the people who went through this program with other teachers in Broward County. And I was so fascinated with the work. I started to make the connection between trauma therapy, mental health and substance abuse and people who would open up in some of the trainings. They talked about not wanting to feel, not wanting to deal with a lot of trauma they experienced and how they dealt with it. Some people absolutely dibble dabbled in substance abuse, whether it was alcohol or drugs. And I find in law enforcement, a lot of people have become okay with, as long as it's not a Schedule One narcotic or any type of illegal or illicit drug, I'm okay. They don't look at alcohol as something that's a bad vice. And cops have this camaraderie around happy hour. I know this because I was one of them. And 
I've never been in a space where, you know, I've used alcohol to deal with any type of trauma, but I absolutely have identified and made the connection with people within my workplace that people talk about, man, that person, have you ever gone out with him or her? They get wasted. And and it was more of a, a laughing matter as opposed to looking back and saying, that person probably had a problem. And in my 20s as a cop, now that I'm doing this work in my 40s, I look back on that time and thought, wow, I really missed an opportunity to help someone. It was more there. And so, yeah, that's how I started to make the connection between substance abuse. And if we're dealing with kids who are dealing with trauma, even though they may have not taken the path of substance abuse, it's not if, but it's like when majority of them will to numb the pain. So here I am uh, in front of Kathy Hurt, and she heard my story and she was like, you know what, Renee, this is really an issue with law enforcement. And just based on her knowledge and the conversations with her husband, we want to do more. How can we help law enforcement? And I thought that was a great question that I've been getting a lot since speaking out on the issue. And I think it matters because I talk to so many law enforcement officers or, or specialists in, within the federal government. And I worked undercover in uh, our, out of our Hyder group here in Fort Lauderdale. And I found people that I've lost to suicide, people that were fired due to substance abuse, and nobody did this work. It was just referral programs, kick the can down the road, are you fit for duty? I need someone on my team who is not going to be an issue. And they just pass people around. And it became very clear, we've been doing it so wrong in law enforcement, so wrong. And, well, it's not just, that's not relate, just Broward County Sheriff's Office, the FBI was the same way. You just ignore the problem. And we talked about this on this podcast where you talked about how you would go out to happy hour, you'd go, uh, you know, they <laughs> in law enforcement, it, it, where, where I worked as a cop, it was called choir practice. And you know, people go out and drink. I don't know if it's called the same way down there, but it, that's what it's called up here. And you, but then you you would laugh at the person. We all know who the, the heavy drinkers are, and people would make fun of them. And what I've tried to get across to people is this is not a laughing matter. It's really not because what you're seeing is someone that is going down that road where it's going to be self destructive. Uh, I talked about in this last episode that addiction gets better. It gets worse over a period of time. It never gets better. There are no exceptions to that. It gets worse over a period of time. And really, if you care about that officer, if you care about the person that you're working with, you're going to address the issue with them. Not because you want to get them in trouble, not because you hate them, but because you love them and you want them to get well. And that's mm-hmm. what we have to do. So what's the issue? And now you just mentioned, Renee, that you kind of look back at that and you 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 question your own behavior and your own motives at the time. But what I tell people is, but you also didn't know then what you know now, right? You didn't, you know, Correct. you have to have some grace on yourself because you you didn't know any better. Frankly, I didn't know any better back in those days. It was only through a lot of very hard learned lessons over the years that I can look back and say the things that I'm saying, but we didn't know that. And one of my uh, opinions is that we don't do enough of this type of training in 
our first responder community. We, we just do not do it. I know I went through, you know, between the military, the police, and, and the FBI, that's three different major training scenarios I went through in my career. And not once did we have these discussions. Nobody ever, we always talked about how you can get hurt on the job, you can get shot, you can get stabbed, you can, you know, all these bad things that can happen to you. But the one thing that we never talked about is the mental toll and the physical toll and the emotional toll that the job takes upon you. I I never Mm -hmm. had that discussion with anybody, but yet if you look back at my career, that's where most of the damage was done in my own life. I mean, would you agree Um, with that? I I would absolutely agree with that. And I think um, at least I, I would say it's true for me. When you come into this line of work, rather, you know, if you're not somebody coming from a war zone in the military, we have a lot of veterans that go into law enforcement, right? And they already, some of them are coming in with PTSD. But think of the the people who are coming out of college or straight from high school, and you start to experience um, trauma. And it can be in small ways. Your first crash, uh, crash that you have to handle, and there's an infant that is dead in the vehicle. And you are new at this and you look and the natural reaction is to feel something for that person or that child. And the minute you look around, because when you're the rookie, remember, everybody's looking at you. Is this your first dead body? And they want to they, everybody wants to come see how you respond to going in the house on your first. We call it single seven, but dead body call. And I look back on that because even if you feel any kind of way. You look up and you look at the glaring eyes and they're looking at you to see if there's any signs of weakness. And you immediately know that if there's anything that's coming up emotionally, you better stuff it down really quickly because it's not safe in this space to feel anything. And you do it over and over. And here you are five, six years in this profession. And it's like, you know what? I don't feel anything. And I found myself, I caught my own bad habits when I went through my training where, you know, I remember being at dinner and I was with people in the private sector and my old partner was with me and we were, the, oh, they were like, oh, you, these ladies are cops. That's so cool. You must have, you know, seen a lot. And we started talking about things. And I remember somebody saying, oh my gosh, I can't hear anymore. Like she was and I was, me and my partner were like, what's wrong with her? And <laughs> it was to us, like, she was weak. And in addition to that, we were like, well, that's our norm. We can see that and go to lunch, you know? And now the awareness is her reaction was normal. We have become so numb and dysfunctional. And we think it is normal to not feel anything. And for people who have seen some serious trauma, Take, for instance, MSD. They don't even know how to feel anymore. And I'm sorry, when you compartmentalize and stuff down and push it down deep, it is going to come out. And in our line of work, it could come out in substance abuse. Uh, uh, Divorce rate is high. How we treat our kids, how we disconnect from our families, even how we treat other employees who are struggling. So I think it creates a a bad culture uh, and it sets a precedent that, you know what? When somebody's having these issues and they're taught to stuff it down and put it somewhere and they have to cope, whether it is through substance abuse or um, very bad behavior, these are things that lead to their demise. They could kill their whole entire career and there's no one 
that is making you feel that it is safe to come out and say, I'm struggling with this because weakness is seen as something that, you know what, you do not possess in this job. So, yeah, I absolutely have always thought, you know, and I am, I was raised to be a good person. I didn't make a lot of the mistakes that I saw other leaders make partially because of my foundation. I was raised by a family that had values. I'm a military brat. We had structure, but I was also taught to help others. I watched my parents help others, help the lady down the street who didn't have food. We were taught that not everybody is. And when you come out of the academy and you're taken in by field training officers, you are now being indoctrinated to, you know, you left the academy and that was good and all, but this is the way it's really done. And some people run with that till you lose that moral compass that some of this it's not right. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely do. And, you know, when we talk about, you talk about that showing the weakness, that absolutely is true. Step one of AA is I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. And the problem that I have run into with first responders, and, and by the way, I will put myself in this same realm, okay, because that's the background I came from. Military, uh-huh. people like that, where strength is is valued. Um, that's a great trait when you're an infantry officer going to combat. If you're a military pilot, uh, not uh-huh. showing weakness, that's absolutely a trait that you want to have in your pilot. I mean, after all, you don't want to be over the Atlantic and a firelight come on and you have your pilot go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? <laughs> oh my God, we're going to die. You don't want that. You want calm, cool, collected. Hey, you know what? It's just a thing. We'll, we'll get through it. If you're a police officer, or a sheriff's deputy, and you're working out on the street by yourself at night, you have to exude confidence. You have to. I worked in the streets of D.C. as a D.C. police officer. If you showed weakness in the neighborhood I worked in, if you showed weakness, you were done in that neighborhood. Okay, so you had to have that. Now, the problem is that if you're if you're struggling with uh, alcohol or an addiction, which looking back at my time during that period as a police officer, I think that pretty much described most that was most of the people I worked with, to be honest with you, to include me. Um, that's the way that we coped, right? Um, but the the problem with that is that you may be the biggest person on the street. You may be the toughest person on the street when it comes to those types of issues, professional issues. But when it comes to addiction, anybody that suffers from alcoholism or drug addiction, you know what I'm talking about. You are not uh-huh. defeating this through your willpower. I don't care how strong you are. If if you were in the grips of alcohol, if you were in the grips of drugs, it owns you. And you know that. And there's no defeating it. So the only way that you get through it is you surrender to it. And so uh, powerlessness and surrender was not in my vocabulary. That not. I mean, you think about it. I was a, a pilot. I was a police officer. I was an FBI agent. Uh, powerlessness was not in my vocabulary ever. But the problem with coming into recovery is you surrender. This is the only war that you win by actually surrendering. It's the only one. But that is the toughest, toughest concept to get a police officer to understand is you have to stop fighting this and just 
surrender to it. But you hit another point, Renee, and that is this. And I think that the public, so if you're, you know, if you're not a police officer, you're not in the military and you're listening to this podcast, you do have to under, that for everyone else, you need to understand it is a closed world in, in the police world. Much of, you know, the reasons being like what Renee just described, you do live in a different world than other people. Uh, I had the same experience as you did. I remember, I remember the first time that that happened to me. I remember coming home and my wife asking me how my day was went. And I remember talking to her about, yeah, I went to this homicide scene and boy, it was pretty gross. There was blood matter all over the floor. It was at the Washington Hospital Center. I'll never forget. I, I still think about it. Every time I drive down past that hospital, I think about that scene. It never goes away. Now, th- now think about that. All these years later, we're talking almost 30 years later, and I still think of that. Uh, dead babies, you know, things like that, car accidents, all the things that you talked about. Now, imagine doing that every single day, and you're doing it for an entire career. I mean, who, who's exposed to that? Who ever has uh-huh. to go to that? And then when I'm telling my wife about my day, and she's like, oh, 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 honey, I didn't, I didn't want to hear that. I, oh, whoa, 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 stop right there. Don't tell me that story, all right? I'm like, okay, well, great. So obviously I can't talk to you and you're my spouse. You know, you're not talking to your church group. You're not talking to your family. Who are you talking to? You're talking to other cops. That's who you're talking to. And that's why that world becomes so closed, so tight knit. And consequently, later when people need to get, and we we tell people, hey, you need to go reach out for help. Well, reach out to who, right? Who are you reaching out to? The other cops are drinking just as much as you are, and none of them are in treatment, and none of them, and if I reach out for help, then that's a sign of weakness, and it's just this self-perpetuating problem, and that's what we're talking about here, is is really erasing that and, and telling, first of all, that culture of using drugs and alcohol to numb out this uh the pain and the memories, that's got to go away. It has to go away. And people have to understand that this is the disease that it is. And it's a deadly disease. Folks, addiction will kill you. It will kill you. But before it kills you, it will destroy everything that you hold dear, to include your career and your family. Then it'll kill you. That's the bonus. So it's a very, very dangerous thing. And I'm just glad to see that uh, uh, you're, you know, you're, have become an advocate really within the agency is are these discussions occurring in your in your agency are you talking to people about this so um if you could recall you know we were we met at the round table mm-hmm. and as you see there were uh, a few sergeants and one deputy yeah. from our agency that were there and more importantly um dave sharp he runs our community services they deal with people who are court ordered go to receive counseling and have to go through programs. And I would say we have people who have a wealth of uh, knowledge about the effects of substance abuse. We're 5,400 employees. And you talk about, I want to say approximately around 2,400 plus sworn. So whether you work in our jail facilities, which you're dealing constantly with people who are coming in detoxing, and I'm talking, it could be somebody who was, an arrest, who was arrested as an attorney to someone who is dealing with homelessness. Um, we deal with people that we do investigations with. You, you think about property crimes and the connection to narcotics and drug abuse and leading to stealing property, pawning it. All of this stuff is connected or even large organization, um, organized crime rings that deal in larger quantity of drugs. These supplies coming into our communities, especially in South Florida, you got to look at the fact that we have airports, seaports, trains, railways, roadways. 
we are one of the biggest hubs for uh, illicit drugs coming into our area. So it's so easily accessible here. And now on top of that, with the opioid epidemic and big pharma, we've been one of the large, we were the largest area that had the most pill, pill mills per capita in the United States here in Florida, mm. where we had so many people from Tennessee, Alabama, you'd see these license plates and they're here because it was so easy to get prescription drugs. So the whole issue with substance abuse has changed where it used to be a issue for people in the street, you know, criminals. Now with opioids and cops who have accidents or surgeries coming back to work addicted to prescription yeah. drugs, that is a huge thing. And I think that's where I, I saw a shift because now it's affecting us. Back when I worked in our detention facility, you'd hear you know, oh, that guy crashed his car. We heard he was drunk. He went and got help, you know, and now he's back at work. And it was just like the hallway whispers. But with the pill epidemic, it started to become more real for not just our agency, agencies nationwide, because pills, just like alcohol, are illegal. And if you have a prescription and you're old enough to buy alcohol, it's okay. But who's monitoring the usage and who knows the trauma that's behind that, that person's dealing with and their over usage or abuse of these things. So yes, those are things that are gonna manifest and work when you have someone coming into roll call and they have alcohol on the breath or they're swaying. It's like we have an issue. And now it's a liability issue because you have somebody in possession of firearm authority to take someone to jail, take someone's freedom. And you as a leader have I want to make sure I'm being responsible. This is liability of the agency. We have an obligation to get anyone struggling with help who needs help, help. I will say Broward Sheriff's Office has done an amazing job. We have an employee assistance program that even since I was a rookie, it was encouraged that we go see someone. I remember, I want to say like 2002, I worked in our detention facility and there was an incident within the um, unit that I worked and a gentleman was stabbed. And he died. And everybody responding to that unit, we had to go see our on-site uh, therapist. And, you know, I remember her asking, are you okay? And everybody knew that if you said, I'm not okay, you got three days administratively off. But they did ask the question. They did have a process in place. And I found there were other places that didn't even have that structure. I, I don't even know how that's even possible to even not check on your people after a, witnessing a traumatic incident. So we have had systems in place. I just feel as times are changing and we have all these campaigns nationwide, it's okay not to be okay. I see that with a lot of agencies doing um, PSAs. I think people are now feeling like, you know what? I may need to say something, especially with suicide rate being so high amongst law enforcement in the last decade. And we've lost people that I know in my agency to suicide. It becomes very real. When it's in another state and another agency, it's like sad, but you know, that's not here. And when it happens here, it's like you become aware. You know what? Nobody even knew that guy or girl was struggling. Mm -hmm. How did they hide it so well? And now it gets other people thinking like, you know, I feel depressed or I feel some type of trauma. Maybe I need to go talk to someone 
And I think the fact that people are now able to talk, the question is, who are they talking to? And I think we talked about it in class. There are people who feel a level of comfort with other law enforcement officers. And they're like, you know what? This is my buddy. I can trust him. And you go to that person or that woman and you're talking. And as cops, we're fixers. You tell us what's going on. We're going to cut in. We're not very intentional with listening and just being present and letting someone express themselves or share, which is therapeutic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And therapists. So then you, you get in there and this is your buddy and you want to fix it and you want to speak to the problem and tell them what they should do. And I could tell you, I long ago, I was that person that people knew they could come to me. They could trust me. I wasn't a gossip and I would listen, but I would also give advice. And I was not in that space trained to do that. But there was a trust factor there. And people who are trained, there's not a trust factor because if I tell you, you may tell my boss and I have to protect the badge and the gun. I don't ever want this to be taken. I I don't want to be labeled and come back to work as the person with the problem. So, yeah, I think we are getting better in uh, the campaigns and also peer-to-peer counseling, getting a lot of other law enforcement officers who want to go and get the proper training so that when their peer does come to them, it can make the difference between saving someone's life, someone getting in a car drinking and hitting rock bottom and killing themselves or someone else. So I like, I, I do like where we're going and I like that mental health is um, something that people are not stigmatizing anymore and saying it's okay not to be okay. And also talking about how you feel versus going to the bar all night long drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's good stuff. That's good stuff. And let me let me just talk about our sponsor one more time, and then we'll we'll continue with this because it's just a fascinating discussion. So this episode is sponsored by FHE Health. We've been talking about them. Some great folks. FHE Health has been providing life-changing behavioral health services for more than 20 years. They treat substance abuse and mental health disorders in an individualized and comprehensive approach. Recognizing the specialized treatment needs of the first responder community, they've created Shatterproof, a dedicated program for law enforcement, fire rescue, and similar communities to receive treatment among peers. There is experience in providing privacy and working with unions for employment. FHE Health is committed to providing the best care experience for our patients, for their families, and for our community. Learn more at FHEHealth.com. And you, Renee, you you spend a lot of time talking about the stigma associated with mental health and, and on, on my side, addiction. And that really is a lot of it, you know, and particularly in the law enforcement community and first responder community is the stigma associated with it. And the fact is, when I look back at my career, there's so much work on not showing any human side to the suffering that we see in law enforcement, when in reality, if I, looking back at my career, I think I'm more concerned with you if you don't have any if you're the the type of person that says, yeah, that doesn't bother me, that doesn't bother me. Well, wait a minute. Well, you just pulled a dead child out of a pool and you're not bothered by that. 
If that were true, I actually think that would bother me more than the, than the opposite, to be honest with you. I think we'd be dealing with some bigger issues. But the stigma is there. Could you talk a little bit more about the stigma associated with that? And then the correlation, you were talking about mental health and addiction and what you've seen between the, those two and how they, they relate. Mental health and addiction, right. So yeah. I... Early on in my career, um, I've been in the criminal justice system about 23 years. So I started out at 21 working um, in the Department of Corrections. And at 21, I mean, you know nothing. And going into a system like that, I worked at a maximum custody facility. Like these, some of these inmates are never getting out. They had life. They committed some very heinous crimes. And what I learned in that space is, you know, you're there eight hours. Sometimes you're doing double shifts, 16 hours, and you are locked in a facility with them. And you, one thing I learned from my colonel is that we don't run this facility. Like at any moment, inmates can take over. We're outnumbered. We run it with their cooperation. Learn to talk to people. And that is where I believe I give credit to working in that facility because it is the foundation of the success that I had when I went out on the road as a law enforcement officer, just talking to folks. And what I learned in the prison system, look, I'm here with you all day. And some of the inmates would come and I would just conversate with them and find out about their families. And just so you know what's going on in your units in case something was going to implode, if somebody lost a parent or, you know, they, they lost contact with their family. And what I learned in talking to some of the inmates, man, lots of lost potential within the prison system. I met people who were, I mean, completely geniuses with math. Um, There was a guy who built a tattoo gun. He was just, if he was out, this guy could have had a career in robotics. He was, he could take anything and make it into something. And you think, wow, if this person would have put this talent to use in the world, they, they could have achieved a lot. What happened? So as I started listening to the stories, it became very apparent. It was the same reoccurring thing. Uh, you know what? I grew up and I had these issues or, you know, I had an undiagnosed mental disorder. I didn't find out about it until I went to prison. Um, I thought something was wrong with me or they had a family culturally. It could be there's nothing wrong with that person. That kid needs a spanking and they grow up never understanding what's wrong with them. So people who have something they struggle with and they don't know what it is and they're not getting help to be diagnosed, they go on to figure out a way to fix it themselves, whether it's the voices, whether it's impulsiveness or whatever. A lot of them led to drug abuse to numb the pain. It was like the gateway marijuana. And then you go into something else, anything to not feel or deal with that mental part of them that was broken, that wasn't being treated. And from drug abuse, I've talked to people who have families, their their spouses left them. They didn't want them around the kids because you have an addiction. You're spending all of the family's money. They got fired from their jobs when they found out that they had a substance abuse problem. I met a gentleman who was the CEO of a company here in Florida. I won't name it, but I talked to this guy, brilliant guy vehicular manslaughter coming from a black tie event. This guy would get statements in the prison and millions of dollars he had. And 
a mistake getting behind the wheel and drinking. And he did this on a regular. And because he was the guy who had the money, no one around him wanted to speak truth to power. And this, he's in a prison uh, with the inmate number with other people who are from all different backgrounds. So whether you are wealthy or whether you grew up poor, one of the issues with the incarcerated now men or women, the reoccurring theme in the background is mental health issues which led to self-medicating through substance abuse. So in the prison, we had something where we, we did lockdown at night when the sun's going down, they, you know, sound an alarm. Everybody needs to go back to their dorm, except for the people who had to take psychotropic medication. And you should see the lines for people lining up for medication. Now, could we reasonably say all of them might not be sick? You know, they might play the system. But a lot of them genuinely needed that medication. And what you saw when they were on medication and they were balanced out, a different person than who they showed up in society as, which led them to prison. So when I looked at that, I thought, what a shame. And and that honestly motivated me to come out of the prison system and want to work within the community to say, how can I help? If I can get to the youth or the young people and have some type of influence, I don't know how that looks, road patrol and the communities helping, I would like to explore that because these this could be prevented if somebody just understood what this was and how to get a person help. Not that, okay, you are using drugs, but why are you using drugs? What is the why? You can put someone in a jail facility And yes, they will stop using, you know, for a period of time because they are they have a barrier between them and that substance. But they go back out and they relapse. I I remember being in the jail system when I left the prison system. I worked in the jail for a few years and I would see people going home, taking their kids pictures with them. They've been in there, you know, um, less than a year. And I'm going to get out. I'm going to get a job. They had such high hopes. And you could see that they wanted to stay clean. This is a new start. And then you would see them a few weeks later in booking. And I'm like, what happened? And they're shaking their head. And Some of them would drop their head and cry and weep because I'm like, I was rooting for you. What happened? And they went right back to what they did. And the underlying issue is they didn't fix what was broken. And that substance abuse, that thing calls them and that feeling there and they go back. So they relapse. So a lot of people ask me now that I'm like looking and delving into this. Oh, have you ever dealt with, you know, any type of substance abuse? And I said, you know, yeah, I dealt with it in the way of working with others who have dealt with it. I don't think one has to experience it to try to understand it or, or help with it. Right. And now that my eyes are open, I think you and I talked um, offline about the fact that I can, I'm so empathetic to people that I've had to arrest weeping, saying, I, I kind of wanted to get caught. Because yeah. I know that if I go to jail, it will put a barrier between me and this thing that has destroyed my life and separated me from my kids. And I'm like, wow, that is a struggle that I will never know. And I can only just empathize with them. But what can I do from where I'm at to help with that? And that's a, that's a huge question because, you know, I, I'm not the fixer of all things. And I think 
before you even try to put your hands on anything, you need to have an understanding by talking to those who suffer with it. And as I said, uh, when we were all at the round table, I am, I, I have my master's. I have no desire to go back and do more schooling. I would like to be that person that if I met people who are struggling, mainly as first responders, if I could figure out a way to get them open to getting help because it takes that trust factor and get them to the right people. That is, I, w- I want to be the connector in that way. And I'm already doing that, working community services, connecting with the community and getting people to come in and understand law enforcement and bridge that gap. I would like to do it in that realm as well. I think it would be a huge accomplishment before I finish my career, honestly. Yeah, and I, I really like everything that you said, and, it, and it's so true. And the problem that we have here is that people don't understand that there is that cause and the condition. And the condition is that there's a genetic predisposition towards addiction. So there are some people that cannot safely use drugs or alcohol in any form, period. And you, you touched on education, and that's an, a piece that we need to put out into the community. And the community needs to be educated on that because I think that the messages are very confusing in this day and age. You know, with all these cities legalizing marijuana and really lightening up on uh, you know how we look at this and how we look at addiction and we still have this belief that it's a moral issue that somehow if you're drinking or you're drugging you're doing that because you don't care because you're a bad person and it's we point to all kinds of issues that have nothing to do with the real issue which is it's a disease it's a disease of the mind and the body your body is genetically predisposed and then your mind tells you that using is not a bad thing you know it's when you look at somebody that's destroying their life we have the assumption that they see what we see and they don't always see what we see that's because the mind is is really in that denial phase and they don't see what you are seeing um and then by the time they they do realize that there's a problem oftentimes it's too late and those claws of the addiction are in them and they can't get out of it because you hit a point and i saw this back when i was a police officer and i still see it to this day i can't think of how many meetings 12-step meetings i've been to where i have heard people say you know, I got that DUI or I got that arrest or, you know, I, I hit my wife and they, they came and arrested me. And you know what? That was actually the best thing that ever happened to me because that uh. was my beginning. That was the beginning of my jury journey to getting well. It was almost like they wanted to get arrested because they knew that there was something that had to happen in their life, but, but they couldn't do it on their own, right? That's that willpower thing. I, my willpower wasn't going to do it, but the fact that I got arrested for a DUI that put it over the edge, and that was the beginning of my journey. And I, have you seen a lot of that, where the you know people have said you know thank you? Have you ever been thanked? I, I a lot of police. I had I had people on the street when I worked as a cop come up and say you know Officer Van Meter, you you know you arrested me. You probably don't remember, but you arrested me for DUI. Uh, thank you. That that was that's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, yes. Yeah. You know one of the. Um, strangest things was um, a young lady. She was completely drunk and I don't know if she was high on anything. I didn't follow up, but she, she looked like she had been under the influence of a lot of stuff. And I smelled the alcohol and she was going to jail. It was a bad day. And I was transporting her to our main jail downtown Fort Lauderdale. This woman called me everything I mean, but the child of God, uh, <laughs> racial slur. And listen, I'm telling yeah. you, she was 
up one side of me, down the other, racial slurs, all this and that. Yeah. And we're most cops, you, you, you know, you're in your feelings. And it's like, you, you know, you call me what game over. I'm mad at you. And I think I understood at a very early age, some principles that was an examples that were set for me by my grandparents. And you know what? I, you're in the backseat of my car and she's yelling and screaming. And why am I going to be mean and respond to you? You are going to jail. And I would look at that situation. I'm going home after shift. You are in handcuffs. You are going and you have no freedom over your movement until you are out on bond. This is a, this is rock bottom. And I know that you've been using something and what, where does it end for you? What, what, what happened to you? That was the question I asked her while she's in the back seat screaming. What is wrong with you? What happened to you? I, it's this is not about I did nothing to you. And I remember her mascara's running, she's crying, and she just stopped. And she's sniffling, and she's looking at my rear view mirror, and she's looking at my eyes. I'm kind of glancing back at her while looking at the road. And she just started crying, bawling. And um, I think it was that question because people are more speaking to your behavior because of your uh, you know, you being drunk, high, whatever. I was speaking to the why, and she said, I, I, I didn't need to be like this. I grew up like this. And she started telling me her story on the drive to the jail. We had a little ways to go. And I started talking to her saying, you know what? You grew up and that was your influence, but you're an adult. You, you don't have to do this. You can choose and make a decision to get your life better. And the minute you walk in this jail, take that opportunity to be separated from whatever it is that you're using that's making you behave like this. You're, you're, you're going to jail. Like this should be your wake up moment. And she was nodding and she was telling me, I'm so sorry for saying those terrible things to you. If you knew the type of household I grew up in, that, that was commonplace and you didn't do anything. So, you know, it actually, I talked to her and didn't intentionally deescalate, but I didn't hand over a rowdy person to the jail, thus leading to use of force and all kind of other stuff. And I remember I got to the Sally port, I pull in the gate and I have to take her out of the car and she's in cuffs. And we walk our prisoners up to the um, intake area where you have the detention deputies that receive the probable cause affidavit and the prisoner. And I turned her around to take my cuffs off of her. And I remember I got one hand out of the cuffs and she swung around quickly and it was so fast she hugged me <laughs> and my arms were at my, my arms it's kind of a dangerous thing side. to do don't do that yeah, folks because it was like uh, but she hugged me and yeah. um i had both my arms at my side and the deputies leaned forward and they realized she was hugging me and she's crying on my shoulder saying, thank you, thank you. And everybody's like, okay, uh, what's <laughs> happening here? So yeah. I was like, you know, it made me super uncomfortable because it was like, you know, that, well, we don't hug the people in the community that we arrest. But, you know, I thought a lot about that young lady. I don't remember her name, but, you know, she went in the gates and, you know, she looked back and I could see her mouthing, thank you so much. And you think about those people. And I wonder wherever she is today, did yeah. that spark, was that her great awakening? Is that the moment that sparked change? I don't know. I never will know, but it is asking the why that 
that right yeah. there is so important. And and it's important. And what you're saying there too, like she just said, you know, this this isn't me. Uh, I know myself and and people that I work with. When you're when you're seeing people in those situations, you're you're seeing somebody that's sick at the moment. They're not a bad person. They're a sick person at that moment. And I think it's important to remember that that that's a human being that's in there. And like you said, the why. There's a reason why they're there. That why they got to this point. And I have seen, and I'm sure you've seen over the years, that when people get clean and sober and they address whatever issues led to them being there, they become very different people. I go to AA meetings now, and I've been around the program long enough. I've seen people come in, you know, when they first came in off the street, and they're just a hot mess. Uh, just, just, they almost seem mentally ill. They, they seem like they can't put a sentence together. And then two years later, you know, I actually just had a conversation with a guy that that I know uh, recently about this, that two years later, clean and sober, and it's like he's not even the same. I, I even told him, I said, I don't even feel like I'm talking to the same person that walked into the meeting <laughs> that first time. You don't even look that. Actually, he doesn't even look the same. He, he acts differently, wow. you know, and great people. These are people. And for whatever reason, uh, addiction's gotten hold of them. Mental illness has gotten hold of them. And oftentimes, um, what seems like mental illness is drugs and alcohol that's leading to that. They're not really mentally ill. It's just that, that you know, that's what using drugs and alcohol does to you. It, it makes you mm-hmm. act like you're mentally ill in, in many cases, not all cases, but many cases. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just amazing. And it's a beautiful thing to see people uh, down the road starting to realize their potential and becoming productive and, and becoming, you know, everything that they were meant to be. And it's just a great thing to, to see. Well, talk about potential, right? And, and the, the the success stories, um, because I think often about people that are in the criminal justice system. I cannot even imagine to be incarcerated at a young age and be in my 40s or 50s. You've lost an entire life. And is it possible to have life behind bars? Yes. They find trades. They and There's things that they encourage them. But let's be honest, the most precious gift, a life and freedom to move around and do what you would like to do with that life. Yeah. Not have to be stuck in a place separated from family for the rest of your life. And listen, people, horrible, heinous crimes, there are consequences for your actions. So, yeah, there's that. But what if you can get to someone before they actually do that. And this goes back to why I got into the work of uh, trauma therapy and breath and meditation, because a lot of these kids, when I talked to those inmates, the correlation was that those grown men started out as somebody's child. They were mm-hmm. an infant at one point in their life. There were a lot of things that did not go right. And you worked as a law enforcement officer. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, I've had 14 year olds that I've arrested for burglaries. And when I get in the room, it's not all about clearing the case. Again, what I, I could see my son at the time. He's 25 years old now. But I, when my son was young, it's like I'm sitting across from my son. And it's like, why are you doing this? You know, what's the why? What, what happened? And you'd hear stories that, you know, my mom has men in and out of the house. They steal my stuff. Mom might be an addict, didn't have a father. Or I live with my grandparents. Both parents are um, on drugs. And when you really hear their story, your heart breaks because you know this 14-year-old more than likely 
is going to be back in and out the system until they commit that one crime that's going to land them behind bars forever. So how I can't fix your home life. But what if I could teach you a skill as far as breath work or meditation to help you regulate your emotions so Mm -hmm. that you don't become impulsive and go out there and try drugs for the first time or commit crimes that are going to lead to prison. So it all comes back to doing work. If you are struggling with substance abuse, that is work. That is probably one of the hardest things you will have to overcome. And you, you talked about that. That requires work. And I just think that people want an easy fix to drown out issues and it's harder to deal with the issues, but you got to take that first step. And that starts with others like me, yourself, making them or creating a space to make them feel safe to do the work mm-hmm. and not have to be in it alone. There's nothing like having support when you're going through something. You need that support in painful times. I know, you know, I've, I've I have three kids. I've never seen a woman lay and have a baby by herself. You got a whole room full of support in such a painful time. And yet you hold someone's hand. You have people standing there telling you it's going to be okay. You need that support. And even talking to people who are in some type of trauma to hug them, to allow them space to cry and say, you know what? Starting today, I'm here with you. You're not in this alone. And a lot of people, unfortunately, in our line of work in law enforcement, don't have anybody vulnerable enough to want to do that with them and, and be seen as weak or tell them to just, you know, just stop doing that. I've heard people say, just knock it, knock it off. It, it's not. It's it not that easy. That. <laughs> exactly. Not. You know, if you could just knock it off, everybody would just knock it off. Yeah. So. I, I used to say that to people all the time. You know, it's. What really? It's just that easy. I remember at the height of my drinking, I had a guy say to me one time, "You know what, Mike? You just need to do ten push-ups uh, before you go to bed at night. That'll help you relax." I'm like, "Really? What? Really? Just ten put ten push-ups a night? That's a, really? <laughs> you mean I could have just saved a decade worth of, <laughs> you know, devastation <laughs> in my life I, if it, all I needed to do was pull up push-ups? Really? A, a, it shows the 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 ignorance. It, it shows the you know where how pe- people think how simple this is. You know the. This disease is very complicated. It very is. But there is help out there and you and you can get people to come alongside you. And what that's what you got to do is you got to you do have to reach out and find out the you know, there are people that can help you. There are people that understand. There are people like us. There are people like, you know, recovery programs all over the world, not just the country. You know, uh, treatment centers all over the country like FHE, like the people that we're working mm-hmm. with. And but you've mm-hmm. got to take that step to get well. You've got to stay, take that step to get well, and you can. So with that, just to take us out, um, any final thoughts? And also, let our listeners know if uh, they need to get hold of you. Uh, it'll get her- uh, hold of the sheriff's office down there, Broward County Sheriff's Office, to uh, uh, maybe learn more about the programs. You know, How would they do that? And just final thoughts, Renee, just take us out. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. It's been it, it's a pleasure to have met you for your trip here to Fort Lauderdale. I'm happy to know that a person with a story like yours is out there traveling and doing the work. And I know it can't oh, be you. easy all the time. So thank you for creating this platform and inviting me here. And the last thing I would just say is that, you know, be very open. Reserve the right to change your mind 
about what you, your listeners, anybody may have thought about substance abuse or what it looks like to get help or even be a support advocate. So yeah, just, I, I think we need more people out there supporting those who are struggling. And as far as the sheriff's office, like I said, we, the, our new sheriff, Sheriff Gregory Tony has taken a very proactive approach to policing and helping people in the community, but also within the agency. And we have so many different initiatives that um, we encourage other organizations to look at, maybe implement. So we can be found on www.sheriff.org, www.sheriff.org. And also I can be reached by email for anybody who has any questions. It's Renee, R-E-N-E-E underscore Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at sheriff.org. Oh, fantastic. And, you know, again, folks, if you want to learn more about what Renee or the Broward County Sheriff's Office is doing, you know, please reach out and and talk to them about it because that uh, they're doing i you know there's a there's a number of agencies in the country that are are really doing a lot of work to help the community in this realm in the the addiction realm and the mental health realm and i was very impressed with the folks that i met with the Broward County Sheriff's office down there and and sheriff if you get a chance to listen to this this broadcast i your your folks are impressive i i really appreciate the work that they're doing and you know get help for yourself uh, reach out, reach out to me as well. And, you know, guys, I just want to just remind you once more that this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. And according to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. Find out more at FHEHealth.com, FHEHealth.com. By the way, it's not just for first responders. You know, if you uh, are anywhere in the country and you are looking for a center to go to, or certainly if you're in Florida, this is a really good program that you should at least uh, consider. So as always, I'd like to say I don't represent any group. I know I talk about AA quite a bit and, and you know, I'm not advocating AA. I'm just saying that that's the program that I use. And so that's my sort of my default discussion piece. But there's a lot of programs out there. Please reach out and find out what you have in your area. So I don't represent anyone other than myself. My only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me and maybe it can help you too. And so if I've said anything or if Renee has said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, you know what, just discard that. But try to take something away from our discussion that you can use to help your you, yourself and others because that's what we do in recovery is we use that information to help other people. So with that please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing, and let me know if there's a topic you're interested in hearing, because I'd love to hear from you. Take care of you guys, and I will see you next time. Thank you.